0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Korean Beauty Show podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, founder, podcaster and K-beauty expert. And here on this show, we are talking everything you need to know to perfect your skincare routine using all the latest K-beauty products, secrets, tricks, uh, everything you need to know. So welcome back. This is the first episode of of 2022, where we are going to be actually doing a deep dive into a topic. Uh, On Tuesday's show, I announced, I guess, shared that we are shaking it up a bit this year. So if you missed that episode, what we are now doing, we are now doing two episodes a week. We are doing one on Tuesday where we're going to be discussing basically all the latest news headlines, uh, questions of the week. Uh, new product releases and then Thursday's episodes from now on are going to be our deep dive topics where we take a look into you know something in a lot more detail and this week for this episode we are going to be wrapping up our segment on Korean sunscreens. So last year I did uh, the first of the the two parts that we were looking into the Korean sunscreen scandal how it happened, why it happened, uh, and basically some of the key differences between sunscreen regulation in Korea and other places. So I just wanted to go into that a little bit more and sort of finish up where we left off, because as I mentioned, there was a loophole in Korea's Uh, regulations around sunscreen testing and that regulation essentially said that if there was a base product a base sunscreen product that had passed all its in vivo tests um, and then the the manufacturer of that product wanted to make minor tweaks to a new formula that that was permissible as long as they were using the main ingredients so they could make minor changes to the formula in the way of say adding a fragrance adding a couple of plant eggs extracts, uh, and they wouldn't need to go through the testing process all all over again if it was substantially the exact same formula. Uh, And that then led to uh, a scenario, the scenario we had last year, where all of a sudden, all of these Korean SPF products were being tested for the first time, essentially, uh, and failing their in vivo tests. So what happened was that the the SPF factor, the number that was printed on the package of the product, say an SPF 50 product, was testing in significantly lower, at say a 19 in some cases, in some cases in the 20s, and consumers were rightly outraged and sort of saying, well, hang on a minute, how can you be selling us a product, marketing it as SPF 50 plus, and then it fails its, uh, you know, tests and the number that comes back is substantially lower. I would not have paid this money for this product if I knew that I was only getting, you know, an SPF 19 level of protection uh, and not an SPF 50. Uh, So look, why was Korean law like that in the first place? I think this was the big question that was on a lot of people's minds. They were just sort of like, well, you know, it seems to be common sense that if you have a formula and you make alterations to that formula, that it's going to be a different formula. And, you know, coming from my perspective as a form- like someone that formulates and manufactures what works with formulators rather, I don't formulate myself, but I'm very familiar with the process of product formulation. I have overseen the formulation and manufacturing of many, many different products. And I can tell you from a first-hand perspective, teeny tiny weeny little changes to a formula are really, really noticeable. Uh, sometimes we will get something back from a lab that has like a 0.0 point something percentage change. So tiny minuscule change and it's almost like it's a different product honestly i can't uh overstate that enough it feels different it performs very differently uh it's one of the parts of the process that is the most frustrating when you're trying to make minor tweaks to a formula and then you get the next one back and you're like is not the same product. Uh, Let's go back and do it again. Uh, And that's why the whole process of formulation takes so long in the first place is because you're trying to, you know, make minor tweaks without altering the product. So from my perspective and the perspective of other people, I guess, that manufacture and formulate, uh, it's a little bit mind boggling that nobody seemed to realize that even minor changes to a formulation could have bigger impacts. However, from the, process, from the perspective of the Korean regulators, they were of the opinion that small changes to the sunscreen formulas through the inclusion of things like plant extracts and fragrances would not have much change to the overall formulation. Therefore, having this loophole in place where the companies didn't need to subject their products to new testing, it was thought as a way of reducing unnecessary regulations. Basically, that's what they thought. Putting a sunscreen through in vivo testing is very lengthy. It's very expensive. The process for a single formulation can cost anywhere between $5,000 to $10,000. Now, That's just the first test. So if the formula then isn't up to scratch, if the formula doesn't deliver the SPF factor that the company was aiming for, you've got to alter the formula and submit the new one for retesting and incur the same costs all over again. So the other thing is, in Korea, we're not just measuring the SPF. Korea has a unique uh, rating system that we spoke about on the last episode with a PA rating system. And the sunscreen product needs to go through clinical tests to determine the PA rating as well. So this is a roundabout way of saying that all said and done, companies can spend tens of millions of won to go through the process of getting an SPF product tested in vivo, PA tested, and then brought to the market. So basically what the Korean government decided was that it was anti-competitive to force companies to do that and that it was not in the best interests of smaller companies to limit SPF production um, and, you know, if they did this basically it would mean that only companies that had hundreds of thousands of dollars for product, product development at their disposal would end up making sunscreens and certainly historically that has been the case in Australia. Very very few companies have had the resources to manufacture sunscreen products in Australia and that's why because it costs too much money. So you tend to get the bigger players your L'Oreal's your banana boats you know really big names only making sunscreen and then there's there's not these smaller indie uh, beauty brands making sunscreens because it's just too expensive. But the Korean regulators thought, look, these tests are basically unnecessary. The costs are unnecessary because the formulas are substantially the same anyway. uh, And that's what they decided to do. That is how they... um, decided to regulate sunscreens. That is how we got this issue in the first place. So many, many, many brands were caught up in the scandal. So some of the ones that you probably heard of if you live in a Western country um, or a country where these brands are popular are brands like Purito, Dr. Jar, Dear Klairs, Crave Beauty and Keep Cool. But there were many others that maybe you haven't heard of before that are popular in the Korean market. Round Lab was one of them. Higae, B Remedies, Medi Peel, Derma Mason, uh, Wonder Bass, Pow Skin Solution, Dr. Bio, Soul 60 Brown Lab, Bano Baggi, Kim Jong Moon, lots and lots and lots of products that were caught up in this scandal. Uh, some were just discontinued or quietly withdrawn from the market, uh, and then others were still being sold throughout 2021. Uh, and the other issue was this, not all of these sunscreens even came from the same manufacturer or the same original formulation that had been previously approved. So Dr. Jart and Crave Beauty were both made by Cosmax. Hige and Round Lab were made by a company called Green Cos, as were Keep Cool and MediHeal. But those two products were taken from a different base formulation again. And then a company called Now Cos, um, an ODM manufacturer, they were also implicated. So what the scandal was, did is it prompted the Korean Ministry for Food and Drug Safety, who is the body overseeing all of this, to take a look into the regulations uh, and, you know, have a look at how did this issue blow up in the first place? How was this able to happen? Now, the thing is, this problem isn't limited to Korea alone. A lot of other people have pointed that out. Uh, Sunscreen index is frequently controversial overseas as well. I know that CNN reported in America back in 2016 that uh, consumer report researchers independently evaluated the UV protection of 65 sunscreen products and 43% of those had lower SPF than the promised label. Uh, Another lab in the States called AMA Lab, that company was arrested, arrested for testing products on a small number of panelists for 30 years and publishing false reports. So look, Uh, you know, is is this just a problem with Korean sunscreens? Obviously not. However, the loophole that did exist in Korea is obviously, uh, you know, a little bit different to the scenarios that were found in other, other places where the products had at least been put through testing in the first place, uh. You know, the FDA in the US, for example, they recommend testing sunscreen samples of SPF 50 plus or higher in several laboratories using the same test and method. And that's also the method in Australia, which is where I'm from. We have a lot of cases of skin cancer and that's the same. That's what they recommend doing. So I think a lot of people, the reason that they were so angry, so disappointed in finding this out about Korean sunscreens, people were thinking, is this a forgery? Like have the brands lied to us about the, you know, the SPF result. Uh, and I don't think it is a case of forgery in the sense that someone's product uh, tested at 19 and they decided to sell it at 50. I don't think that's what happened here. I think this was a systemic failure. So in circumstances where Korean law allowed this kind of system to take place and the lack of, you know, testing was allowed by law, I don't think that's the same as, you know, forgery or shifty behavior on the part of the brands. But that also doesn't mean that responsibility doesn't need to be taken. Uh, and I think the particularly problematic brands were the ones that were targeting overseas markets, trying to find loopholes in the law to sell their products, for example, in the US. Uh, you know, Crave Beauty was selling a product there that they were marketing as a sunscreen in one jurisdiction and not marketing as a sunscreen on purpose in America, America because they knew that the law, you know, wasn't on their side. I think those kind of uh, practices are problematic and they cause people to then lose trust in the industry. Uh, So look, I think uh, sunscreen regulation in general is a minefield, but why don't we take a look at you know, contrast. I guess the Korean system with other systems, and the system that I'm most familiar with is Australia. So this is how we do it in Australia, and this is the reason why no Korean sunscreens that I know know of have ever been able to be sold in Australia in the first place. So this was not a problem that you know impacted us uh, at Style Story. Obviously, we don't sell Korean sunscreens; we're not able to, and the reason is that. Uh, in Australia the sale of sunscreens is regulated by the Therapeutic Goods Administration the TGA very similar to America's FDA and basically the TGA classifies sunscreens as products that are primarily used for protection from UV radiation and have an SPF of four or more Uh, they also regulate the sale of moisturizers that contain sunscreen with more than an SPF of 15 but makeup is excluded so makeup with SPF in it, they don't regulate because they're saying the primary purpose is not UV protection. The primary purpose of makeup is makeup. Uh, So basically what the TGA requires is that in order to be sold in Australia, sunscreen products need to be tested to determine their SPF, which is printed on the label, and only approved ingredients can be included in sunscreens. uh, And the ingredients are obviously those that they have assessed for their safety. The other thing is this, in Australia, before a sunscreen can be legally marketed, in Australia it needs to be included on what is called the ARTG and that is the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods and that in a nutshell is the reason why Korean sunscreens are not able to legally be sold in Australia and that is because none of them at the moment are on the ARTG. Uh, So look As you would expect from a country that has some of the highest incidences of skin cancer, like Australia, it is not a simple process to have a product be included on the ARTG. Australia is well known for being one of the most difficult countries in the world for a product to pass the testing. Uh, For one, sunscreens have to be manufactured at a TGA-approved manufacturing facility, and they can only include TGA-approved ingredients. and look, the, just some of the regulatory guidelines that are in place in Australia include requirement to reproduce spf test results and that wouldn't so this korean sunscreen issue would not have happened in australia in all likelihood because they need to reproduce their spf test results they need to undertake water resistance tests which a lot of other countries don't require stability testing they need to comply with manufacture and quality control conditions they need to obtain permits to use new ingredients there's basically a laundry list of other requirements australia also has uh you know labeling requirements very strict labeling requirements in in relation to things like broad spectrum performance uh which means that the product protect protects you against uva and uvb rays we spoke about that in the last episode uh where we sort of took a look at you know the labeling systems around the world with uh, all of the different types of uh, claims that SPF products normally make Uh, and basically it is as I mentioned very very expensive to go through this process in Australia it's an investment of time money there are not too many companies that can afford to make that investment without a guaranteed payoff Uh, so Banana Boat which is a really popular local manufacturer of TGA approved sunscreens they reckon and it takes them three years to bring a new sunscreen product to the Australian market. So this is not a slapdash job. I guess it is, you know a very different way of regulating than the type of regulation that is being done in Korea, where the, the stated aim of regulators is to reduce the barriers, burdens, and things like that. Australia is not down with that. Uh, you know, they are happy that the process takes longer. They don't care that it takes a lot of time and money. That is just the system. Uh, I know some companies, for example, have attempted to release uh, cosmetically elegant sunscreens to the Australian market, but then they get really, really low ratings for their product. Uh, so there is an Australian brand called Go To Skincare. A few years ago, they tried to release uh, a product like that, and it ended up with an SPF rating of 15 plus, which is just not enough for most Australians. It's not enough to be used for a day at the beach. It's not enough for skiing or anything like that. So this is a like a common problem in Australia, I guess that uh, companies will have a lot of Trouble bringing a new product to the market. And, you know, the other thing in both Australia and the US is that they tend to rely on older chemicals like nanotitanium dioxide and zinc oxide to provide some protection. They are not as cosmetically elegant as the newer types of ingredients. Uh, There is an official list of Australian-approved active ingredients for sunscreen. I will include that in the show notes for today. You can go through it if you are interested in that. Uh, I also have a list here of the FDA-approved sunscreen active ingredients and the range that they cover so I will include all of that in the show notes but basically the US and Australian system is that they're working off a list of approved ingredients and that's a little bit different from the Korean one which as I mentioned they are trying to uh, to promote innovation they are trying to promote you know newer companies coming up and making sunscreen products so look Where does the industry go from here? I think one thing it is important to point out when it comes to the Korean SPF scandal, the one that broke out last year, is that all of the sunscreens that went on to fail their SPF tests were sunscreens that had entered the market using the exemption, the loophole for the testing procedure. So none of those products had actually been tested prior to entering the market. What they were doing was using the base formula that had been approved but with modifications. So I think that makes the the situation in Korea slightly different from, you know, some of the other cases I have seen where labs are falsifying test results or potentially the product did pass testing and then later was tested by a consumer group, for example, and then it failed. Uh, And, you know, those kind of cases always throw up uh issues of you know well how was the product stored how was it transported how was the testing carried out so this was different this was these products they weren't tested in the first place that's how they entered the market uh and then you know obviously down the line were tested and found to have been woefully underperforming essentially uh so i think Uh, Obviously, this has caught the attention of the regulators in Korea, as you would expect. Uh, People were rightly very, very annoyed about this. So, in 2021, the Ministry for Food and Drug Safety, the MFDS, made several uh, updates to its cosmetic regulation. The big one that they're doing, uh, you know, they're they're constantly updating their regulations, but they are really focused, I think, at the moment on reinforcing skin safety. Uh, They had a look into the regulation of stem cell ingredients. That's going to be regulated more tightly. They are... um, looking at the claims around products benefiting atopic skin, like skin with dermatitis and things like that. I think sunscreen regulation, because of how many complaints they received, I think they are definitely going to be looking into that this year. Um, They are planning to start their verification this year in 2022. So I don't know exactly what that's going to involve, but you would imagine that it might move things slightly more towards the TGA, FDA approach. In Australia and America, you know, and away from the current system that they're having, that's you know speculation at this point. But I think there's definitely going to be changes in the industry. I don't know that that system can continue. Uh, you know what? The other thing is, I was quite vocal last year about the fact that so many of these brands, even though they were promoting their products in overseas markets, never had. The products tested in the markets. And I think that's problematic. I think if you're a Korean manufacturer who is, you know, or brand that is making the products here and then with a primary aim or purpose of having them tested in, say, the US you probably should be getting them tested in the U.S. market. Like, apart from just being legally a good idea to cover your back, uh, you know, I just think there's something a little bit uh, iffy about never having had the product tested, you knowing that, you know, spending all this money marketing the products without having crossed off those things. You know, sunscreen is just not something that should be taken lightly. Um, I know as someone, you know, that manufactures products, that like sunscreen is probably the last thing i would do just knowing how many issues there are with the whole testing product you know testing procedure uh and you know how disappointed people are going to be if the product doesn't live up to its claims you know sunscreen is something that shouldn't really be taken lightly i think far too many brands clearly were happy to just slap their branding on the product and you know send it out to a million influencers um, I just find that problematic. I really, really do. I stand by that. I think whether they, you know, were using a legal loophole or not, if you're going to be selling the product in these companies, you know, CosRx, for example, uh, knew that their product wasn't uh, suitable to be sold in Australia, knew that it didn't uh you know live up to what that hadn't been tested that it wasn't legally able to be sold there and yet still were selling it there i think that's problematic they were using other companies not style story to sell their product they knew that the product was being sold illegally in australia you know i just i i don't agree with that i don't think that's right uh, I think brands should take, particularly for something as serious as sunscreen, take a little bit more care, uh, you know, be a little bit more ethical about it. You know, it shouldn't be a case of sales for the sake of sales, I don't think. You know, and I've had this conversation with so many Korean companies over the years and basically just said, look, you know, we can't um, sell your product for you in Australia. And they're, you know, happy a lot of times to then just go and find someone else that will sell it. Uh, and, you know, I just think, well, you reap what you so then if you do end up getting into trouble you know um later down the line well you know you that was the risk that you took in trying to break the law, knowingly break the law. I think there's one thing to, you know, be said about companies that ended up in this situation because they didn't know any better. But in the case of companies that were deliberately trying to mislead consumers or trying to find, you know, a sneaky way around selling their SPF product like Crave Beauty was doing, you know, you report what you sow, I think, and that's, you know, unfortunate, but if you're trying to find loopholes around something that is regulated quite strictly uh, like sunscreen is, you know, I, I don't know. I think, you know, it's one thing if you f- fell foul of the law and, you know, weren't 100% sure. But if you knew exactly what you were doing and doing it anyway, then there are obviously going to be consequences for those actions. And with all of the, you know, with a lot of stuff to do with cosmetic regulation, it's shades of grey. It's not necessarily black and white, but sometimes it is black it is black and white and i think sunscreen regulations certainly in australia and in the states where they have you know a list of uh ingredients and filters that can and cannot be used that's pretty black and white it's not the same as you know maybe making certain claims about a product um and you know that's open to interpretation or whatnot so look that's sort of my 10 cents on, on the issue. I think that there are obviously needs to be changes in the in the industry. I think there needs to be changes in the regulation. But I would hope that the brands that were caught out, uh, you know, maybe trying to do the wrong thing or trying to find loopholes where there weren't loopholes, you would hope that they would have learned their lesson from this. I think, unfortunately, some of the smaller brands probably just got caught up in it and didn't realise. Uh, and You know, a lot of the brands, particularly the ones that were just selling their products in Korea. They weren't breaking the law. They weren't doing anything wrong. This loophole did exist. They weren't falsifying facts or figures or anything like that. They were just making use of a loophole. I think the companies that probably deserve a little bit more criticism were the ones that were trying to find ways around, you know, known uh, rules and regulations and just trying to sort of, you know, find alternative ways. I'm, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with that. Uh, but look... Uh, I think what that means so basically korean sunscreens still are not available for sale in australia and i think until a korean beauty company is willing to submit their sunscreen to the sunscreen testing processes in australia then that's going to be the same uh i think that that's going to be a very hard thing to do obviously needing to be tested in you know tga approved facilities and things like that uh, but look i think the industry has already shown that it is capable of reform that you know a lot a lot of The companies that were caught up in the scandal were happy to, uh, you know, refund their customers and things like that, which is obviously what they should be doing. Uh, So look, I think it remains to be seen. I don't know that we will see a similar scandal like this uh, emerge anytime soon. I'm sure there'll be further scandals down the line. That's just the nature, particularly of sunscreen uh, and sunscreen testing and whatnot. Uh, But I think, look, I will update you as soon as I sort of know what the the newer regulations are that they're that they're planning to introduce. But I think at the moment the industry is just sort of taking a look into it, looking at the changes that need to be made. Uh, and you know, a lot of the companies that were implicated in the scandal in the first place has since bought out newer versions of their sunscreen products, and they've shown testing results from multiple different labs, uh, and they've submitted their products to testing overseas as well. And I think that's probably what people should be doing from now on not just relying on you know testing from a single lab but having it peer reviewed having it reviewed at other labs having you know the a sanity check basically on the figures and things like that that they were getting from their labs. I think that's obviously the way that it needs to be dealt with uh, for the time being and I think that's just prudent from, you know, a company perspective as well to try and avoid any issues with liability, uh, any, you know, legal problems down the line. That is a very, very prudent thing to do is just to dot all your I's and cross all your T's, make sure you've got everything in order and I think we can see you will see more of that going forward as well. I think that's how it's going to be dealt with for the time being to give consumers uh, the confidence that they need to keep purchasing these products. I think that's really needed at the moment uh, given the, you know, the fact that the law was obviously a little bit lagging behind. So, guys, that was the crux of this Korean sunscreen issue. I hope that has sort of clarified a few things in your mind. Uh, as always, very interested to hear your thoughts on the issue. You know, are you do you feel safe? purchasing these products are you happy with the way the companies are sort of taking it on board themselves to do the additional testing did this scare you off using spf products maybe it did uh you know come and find me uh and as always i'd love to hear your thoughts as well Uh, and that is all i had for this week's episode so i will wrap it up here and i will be back on tuesday with another new drop until then i will see you on style story